Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day, for all of the blessings that you pour upon us. Help us to realize our privileges and our responsibilities. And as we open your word this morning, help us to see what a great and loving God you are, saving us and reconciling the universe. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Okay, this morning we're really getting into, uh, this morning and tomorrow morning, we're really getting into the heart of our message. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on verse 28. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be picking it up at verse 28. I want to just say a few brief remarks before we get into this. Are you understanding Paul's method? Every biblical writer has a style, has a way of expressing truth. And it will help you enormously if you can get into the mind of the writer and see how he lays his material out. For example, um, something that is very obvious to me is that Paul likes to argue his point. Now, he's not, he's not like some of us, just argumentative. But he's not, say, he's not telling us to do anything unless he backs it up with some evidence, some proof of something. So what you'll find is this is like some, some have likened Romans 8 to climbing a staircase to heaven. Or the way I would express it is he's piling argument upon argument. Every, every argument or every phase of the argument is crucial. If you pull one out, for example, the book of Genesis has been heavily criticized. So... If you take out from Paul's writings his emphasis on, on Genesis, then you're pulling one of those planks out of the argument. So you can't do that. All of it is whole and consistent. Every piece is important. Um, it is really fascinating to see how inspiration works. Now, remember that inspiration works on the mind of the writer. They are not a mechanical robot just dictating what the Almighty is saying to them. Now, some Christians do believe in inspiration that way, and it gets them into a whole lot of trouble. So, we believe the, right, the biblical writer expresses truth as it's conveyed to them by the Holy Spirit, according to their personality, according, according to a certain way of writing, a writing style, and that, that um, at any point in time they could cross that out and express it differently, and it still would be truth. So be looking for the technique, the way that these truths are laid out, because what he's trying to do is build an impregnable argument that if you attacked it from every angle, it would be foolproof. And by the end, by the time we get to the end of the book of Romans, I will I will be showing that how that is the truth uh, a little bit more carefully. All right, Romans eight twenty eight, and you had some uh, homework on this, didn't you? 
amazing how the students go quiet when the teacher mentions homework. So what was your homework? Hey, it was only 24 hours ago, folks. Is it so cold that your mind freezes? Well, I left you in in Romans 8.28 yesterday, though we didn't expound it very much. And it's very obvious that we can easily figure out how the good things work for our good. But what I wanted you to think about is how the bad things, how all things, yes, but how the, the tricky part of the bad thing, what we consider the bad things, how can they work for our good? So I will spend a little bit of time. And if any of you have any, um, you do, okay, so just raise your hands when I get to that point, when I'm going through that section, and, and we'll just have some, some sharing there. Okay, he says here, and there are, there are different ways of translating verse 28, but we're going with the NIV. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, if I said to you, what do you think is the key phrase in that sentence, what would you say? Those who are called is about us, right? Even though God is doing the calling. But I think you hit the nail on the head. You had a good, good guess there. According to his purpose. That is a key phrase to understanding not just the book of Romans, but the whole Bible. If I was to say to you, in one brief sentence, summarize the whole Bible... That's 66 books. Do you think you could do it? Okay. So some of you are thinking about it and trying it. Could it be that we could say that God has a plan and a purpose to solve the sin problem? God has a plan and a purpose to reconcile the whole universe? Now, he doesn't really say that specifically in, in Romans, but in, in Ephesians, he, he does say that. So, the, so the, the plan and the purpose is way bigger than just you and me. We live our Christian lives as though it's all about us. And I find, this is not, this is not so much a criticism as, as, as a, an observation which, which has proven true to me. A lot of us are very subjective in the way that we view our salvation. And it really, it really um, comes through because... In many ways, we are the me generation. And it's all about me, me, me. And we get that from the world, don't we? We pick that up very quickly. But we shouldn't view salvation that way. Salvation is all about God. God's plans. God's purposes, which will be absolutely perfectly fulfilled according to, to exact detail. And you can see that just from the Old Testament. How many times do we see... Um, Jacob thinking he should bless this person, but in reality, someone else gets blessed. Have you ever wondered why all those kind of strange stories are in the Bible? They're all trying to tell you something about the sovereignty of God. 
that God is in total control of his, his plan. And it will be, full, no matter what humans do, no matter what the devil does, these evil forces, God's plan will absolutely be fulfilled. That's a very good objective way to view the Bible. Alright, so what's God's plan and God's purpose here as we go through these verses? Um, these things working for good, is this for everybody? How many say yes? If you don't, if you don't know, just guess. How many think yes? How many think no? Alright, you're on the ball again. This girl's hot this morning. You all need to gather around her and get some of her energy this morning because she's hit the nail on the head twice. Look at the verse again. Look at the verse. Yeah, you said it right there. We know that in all things God works for the good, and then it qualifies that, of those who love Him. And do you remember me asking you, do you love God? Because that is one of the evidences that you've been called. How do you know if you've been called? Well, one evidence is you love God. Now, I know there are people that say they love God who have not been called. But if we're looking for um, evidence of, of characteristics of those who have been called, and I have a number of them that, that I wrote down last night and have them in my notes here, then that, this obviously would be one of them that we, we love God. Okay, remember the context of our passage. Those, some of you may be coming. Are any here for the very first time this morning? Like you weren't here yesterday, you weren't here the day before. Hi, is that Joe? Hi, Joe. Nice to see you. Okay, so let me quickly do a real quick summary. He starts by introducing in chapter 1 the gospel of God. Do you remember that? That was in those early verses. And then when we got to verse 16 and 17, he says... Uh, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right? There were two verses on that. And all of that delivers us from what? Verse 18 delivers us from the wrath of God. God's hatred against sin. We are delivered from that. Uh, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why it's good news, because we're delivered from the wrath of God. And in those early chapters, uh, at the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, he explains what justification or righteousness by faith is. And then we spent a little bit of time in Romans 5. It says, therefore, a summary statement of the earlier four chapters, therefore, because we're justified through faith, we now have peace with God. And he also introduced in Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit, which, who is really big in chapter 8. So we're always going to be looking for the Holy Spirit, what he's up to in chapter 8. So that's a little bit of the background. And also this chapter, we said, starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. There you go. There you go. Alright, so this is qualified for those that love God. So let's call them the godly. Do godly people suffer? Alright, give me some examples. The martyrs, Job, 
Yes, what about the man who wrote this book? Paul, did he suffer? So I've got in my notes here, Stephen was stoned, Paul beheaded, Peter crucified. We know that from church tradition. John exiled to Patmos. Christians experience accidents, calamities, criticism, victimization, alienation, trials, tribulations, persecutions, physical weakness, sickness, and death. Have I missed anything out? Probably, but you get the point. Godly people do suffer. We see that all the way through Scripture, and our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a perfect example of that. And as I've said, my second point is God works all things together for good for Christians, only for those who love Him. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that. God overrules evil for those who love Him. So it says in our text that God works. He works all things, the good and the bad. He sustains all things, right? He doesn't just create, He sustains. He controls all things. Nothing's automatic. The universe is sustained through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the text for that, which we're not going to read, is Colossians 1, verse 17, for those of you that are taking notes. So this working of God is for the Christian's benefit. And such a teaching should energize us. Because nothing that's thrown our way is outside of God's plan and purpose. Now you have to readjust your whole thinking to get a hold of that. It's a pretty profound thought. Did Job understand? Somebody mentioned Job, a great example of what we're talking about. Did Job understand God's plan and purpose? You can read the whole book of Job. It's quite a long book. And you can get near the end of the book and you're just waiting for some kind of of explanation that's going to click with Job. And he doesn't get it. But... Was, yeah, what, was he obedient? Did he trust God? And was he vindicated by God? Yeah, he had a little rap on the knuckle, I know that, but he was vindicated by God. So that's a great example, a great book, individual, to illustrate what we're studying in Romans eight twenty-eight. Okay, here's the homework question. How can all things which are bad work for our good? So, Wow, praise God. 2,400 that you didn't expect. Now I have a 19, what is it, 1998 Honda Civic with almost 400,000 on it. And if any of you want to whack my car today and I get a couple of thousand dollars, that's okay with me. No problems with that. Yes, sir. Two years, okay. Can you hear over here? Speak up a little bit. His brother's wife was killed in an accident. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We, God can be glorified, yes. Um, my husband was working um, for his job, taking a class, and he was pulled out of the class because the doctor insisted on having a machine. Um, he fixed the machine and was done a day earlier than the class would have finished. So he chose to come home, and the next day the plane that he was supposed to be on uh, fell to the ground and killed everyone on board. Wow. So God works even though we don't know he needs to work for us. Well, that brings up an important point. Um, Before we move on, we're ready to move on at this point, is... um, Many of the many of the meanings to the things that happen to us in life, we will not know in this life. Now, sometimes we might. Sometimes we can figure it out. I know that I've been a Christian for a while now, and I know that I can look at things that happened in my early Christian experience, and I can really see some meaning there. But very often, and I think Job is an example, we're not really going to know until we meet God in his glory. Okay, here's some points that I wrote down. When bad things happen to God's people, they get our attention. They shake and wake us up. They make us think. When we are coasting spiritually, then our soul is in danger. The psalmist in Psalms 119.71, verse 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. Bad things happening for our good exposes our unworthy thoughts about God. We have a tendency to complain against God for our misfortune. Also, we realize how weak and sinful we really are. It humbles us. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12, um, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians, what chapter? 12, picking it up at verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Did Paul understand the purpose of the thorn in the flesh at the beginning? No, obviously not. Otherwise, he wouldn't pray this way. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So then he gets an explanation. Some kind of meaning there. And here's how he responds. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am what? Alright, so there's somebody who does get an answer some kind of explanation, and then he rejoices in that. And then he accepts what what he used to think was the misfortune. There's two different things we're talking about here. There's one thing about trying to understand and figure things out. But if you've got bitterness in your heart, right, you're really not embracing what God is sending your way. 
And then, of course, we have to say, well, why does God send these things our way? What is his meaning? What is his purpose? Why does he do those things? All right, let me quickly go through this. Helps us to grow mature in grace and knowledge. Are we supposed to grow as Christians? Mature as Christians? Well, persecution and suffering can certainly help. And remember, we're building on what was said earlier in in Romans uh, 8. So from verse, uh, I think it's 16 or 17. No, verse 17 and, and 18 to verse 23. It's all about suffering. So, so this verse 28 is helping us to understand those earlier verses on suffering. We begin to understand the depths of God's love, His care for us. Helps us slow us down, puts life in perspective, detaches us from the world, and prepares us for eternity and the coming glory. And even our sin, even our backsliding, can draw us closer to God. Can you think of any examples in the Bible that would illustrate that? How our sin, and of course God doesn't want us to sin. Does God want us to backslide? Obviously not. But we do sin. And some of us do backslide. How can God even use those things for good? All right, David, Mary Magdalene, What about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? And uh, what about Peter? Peter's a great example. Many of you like Peter because he kind of messes up a lot, doesn't he? And we can see ourselves a little bit in that. But Jesus said to Peter, and Peter made these great, bold, powerful statements on what he would do for the Lord. He would lay down his life and so on. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I prayed for you. Don't you want Jesus to be praying for you? Those, those are good prayers. Peter, I prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And Peter doesn't understand that. He falls flat on his face by denying his Lord. Did Jesus, was Jesus' prayer successful? Yes, it was. Because Peter learned a really important lesson of depending on God from his misfortune, from his sin. So God brought good out of a bad situation. Could God have taught the lesson some other way? I'm sure he could, but he, it, it worked that way. So there's a whole lot of mystery there. I understand that, but it's important for us to grasp that the good, the bad, whatever's thrown our way is, for, is fitting in to God's plan and God's purpose. So let me ask you, it's an obvious thought that should come to our minds now, Why does God allow these things to come our way? And what is our growth? What what is the whole point? Closer to God? Verse 29, I think it is. Somebody read verse 29. Now let me just make sure here. Yeah, verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed, and maybe if you have some other translations, I'd like to hear them, conformed to the likeness or the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. Well, we really don't know the depravity of our own heart, do we? Jeremiah says the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? But God understands. 
And when God saves us, He saves us as we are, with all of our hangouts, with all of our problems, with all the stuff we've inherited from who knows what, with all of our misfortunes, and He is going to perfect us. That's got part of God's plan and purpose to perfect us. So as I said earlier, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. What is the hard way? Well, take the example in Corinth. There you had a very divided church family full of spiritual gifts. I mean, spiritual gifts were just popping all over the place in Corinth. Um, But they had at least four divisions, four cliques within that church. And some pretty lousy attitudes when it came to communion and and things like that. Some of you know, I've studied that and know what I'm talking about. Well, what were some of the bad things, in quotes, that God sent their way when he disciplined them and when he chastised them? Paul says, some of you are sick and some of you have died. He doesn't say that any of them were lost. But he does say God has his methods, his ways. The book of Hebrews is is really big on this. God has his ways to bring us into line, to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, pastor, that's that's pretty, pretty severe to lay us on our back for six months, for example, on our sickbed. But if that's what it takes to bring us into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, then so be it. And when we see things from the perspective of eternity, if I understand Ellen White correctly on this point, she says we would change nothing. Now you think some of the tough things that people go through, that Christians go through in this world. She says we would change nothing. Because of course we would be seeing this life in the light of of eternity. And that's often where we go wrong. That's why we should emphasize glorification way more than we should emphasize sanctification. And yet you almost never hear a sermon on glorification. Pretty rare that I've ever heard anyone preach very much upon the end process of glorification. Okay, there's some ideas how all things can Even the bad things can work for our good. So do we know this morning, Paul says in this verse, at the beginning of verse 28, and we know, do we know, do we know that God has our best interests at heart? Do we know that? After studying this, do we know it more than before we studied this? Do we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength? That's God's goal for us. Do we live for God's glory despite our adversity? See, the world is watching us. In fact, the whole universe is watching us. The Bible says they're on tiptoe trying to figure out this amazing miracle of God that He can conform us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when adversity and suffering comes our way, How do we handle it? Is it with praise? Or is it with griping? If it's with praise, whoa, 
How does that work for God's glory? That works in a very powerful and wonderful way. All right. Let's go and finish this passage. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Okay, let's deal with that phrase, called. It's obviously an important one because he mentions it twice in a couple of verses here. How do you know if you have been called? I've given you one clue already. What was that? That we love God. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love God. So there's one characteristic of those that are called. And there is the general call and there is the effectual call. So the general call goes to all. The effectual call is for those that love God. Those that respond in the right way. Right? So, I wrote down, they love God. just said that. 1 John 4.19. Somebody read that quickly. 1 John 4.19. And I'll just go through some of these other points while you're looking that up. How do we react to trials? That can be an evidence of whether we are called or not. Do we understand that you are what you are only by the grace of God? Do we grasp that point? It's it's Christianity 101, I know, but it's a really important point to grasp. Um, Are we convicted of sin? Those that are not called are not convicted of sin. Those that are called are convicted of sin. Even if they fall into sin, they're convicted of sin. Okay, who has that text? Okay, we love Him because He first loved us. Someone that's not effectually called can never say that. They don't... Well, that's also true too. Think of it. Okay. Okay, so there's, there's another evidence. That's something that we can, we can add to this idea of loving. We love God. Well, how do we know we love God? We love the brethren. If you don't love the brethren, you don't love God. It's a lo- whole lot easier to love God than the brethren, don't you think? Yes. Who are the brethren? Maybe I shouldn't use that term. It's a bit may- too male, huh? The family of God. Children of God, sons and daughters of God. That's who we're talking about. And I know some of them are pretty hard to like, but you can still love them. Yes. Yeah, could be. Yeah, just a general call. Yeah, the just a general call and the effectual call is for those that love God, those that respond. So that's the way that theologians usually deal with the idea of, of the call. All right, let me go quickly through these other aspects of those that are called. They believe the word of God. Um, they have a sense of need. They respond to Jesus Christ. They're amazed at the mercy of God. Paul was always amazed that he could be an apostle. 
He was all amazed that God transformed him on that, on that Damascus road. Um, they're not happy in sin. Even if they're playing around with sin, they're not comfortable. They're not happy with sin. The unbeliever is very comfortable with sin. The, non, the, the believer, not so. Uh, they thank God for their chastisement and their discipline. They love the brethren, so I did have that in my notes. They believe the gospel, especially righteousness by faith. They accept God's verdict that they're a sinner heading for hell. And, of course, that's why they respond to Jesus Christ. And they understand that there's no hope of eternity outside of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure there's many other points we could write down for the called. But this is such an important phrase here. We need to spend a few moments figuring out, are we, do we fit in to this verse here? Are we part of this group um, that know God, know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose? So we've talked quite a bit about the plans and the purposes of God. The plan and the purpose of God is to reconcile the whole universe. Ephesians 1 is very strong on that. Let me quickly go to that. Those of you that are taking notes need to get this down in your notes. Very helpful material here. And I'll just quickly go through some verses. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So when you woke up this morning, you praised Him for the blessings, right? For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. So this plan and purpose of God is figured out before the creation of this world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That's the same as being conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 8. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure, His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Now there's a phrase here that I'd, I'd never really noticed before until very recently. And I can almost kick myself for missing it. But it's this phrase here, to the praise of His glorious grace. And we see it again in verse 12 and verse 14. To the praise of His glorious grace. Um, does anyone else have a different translation for the beginning of verse 6 in Ephesians 1? NIV, to the praise of His glorious grace. So what God is doing in saving us can be summarized right here. It's all to His praise and for His glory. That's why you always have to start with salvation from what God has planned, what God has purposed. We are, if we've responded so that, that in that effectual call, we've responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, is doing something in our lives through the Holy Spirit that's going to work throughout eternity to His praise and His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of of His will. That's what we're studying. We, we haven't come across that phrase yet, but the mystery of His will is what we are studying in Romans 8. 
according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth, that's the universe, together under one head, even Christ. So who is the head of the church? Who is the head of the universe? Christ. So you have a head. Most of you here this morning have a head, right? Some of us might be blockheads, but we have a head. So, and you have a body, right? So what controls the body? If I move my fingers like that, where are the messages coming from? From here, from the head. So the Lord Jesus Christ overrules God's family, allows good and bad to happen in their lives, is going to conform them to his own image, and it's all going to resound throughout eternity to his praise and to his glory. That's the way to look at salvation. Jesus, God, is in control of every phase of this plan of salvation. What the devil wants us to do is to overly focus on self. And what I call that is spiritual navel-gazing. Now, some of, us can't even, some of us can't even bend our head far enough to, to do that, but that's the way I view it, spiritual. And, and earlier I said it's a subjective way of looking at our salvation. And a lot of the, the language of Christendom, we just need to surrender more. We just need to abide more, lends itself to that way of thinking. And to me, it's very, very dangerous. And it's very unbiblical. The first thing you need to do is to realize what God has done already before you were even around. And he did something significant, very significant, 2,000 years ago on Calvary. Begin to understand what Christ did on Calvary for himself, for God's glory first, for you and I, for the whole sake of the whole universe even. Begin to understand that. And by understanding that, not just in an intellectual way, I don't mean that, but, but buying into it with every part of you, sanctification will happen. Sanctification and holiness is inevitable for those that are in Christ Jesus. One of the evidence of a person who's playing around with sin and calls themselves a Christian is that they're not in Christ Jesus. I mean, how many sermons do you hear about those that are not in Christ Jesus who really think they are in Christ Jesus? What about that passage in Matthew that I, I don't know if I turn, I don't think I turned to it, but I, I did mention it to you recently. Many will come saying, Lord, Lord, we've done this, that, and the other in your name. And Jesus says, Depart from me. I mean, these are the most, some of the most solemn words ever in Scripture. Depart from you. I, I don't know you. You that work iniquity. All right? So, better move on because there's good stuff here. Okay, did you like that passage in Ephesians? Chapter 1 fits in very well with what we're studying here and actually helps us to understand these verses. Verse 29 in Romans 8, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So that's the goal, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. 
and those he justified, he also glorified. So let me ask you this question. Did God foreknow you? Another translation for that, it, that some like, is God foreloved us. Okay, so did he, yes or no? Yes, all right. Did God predestine you to be conformed to the likeness of his son? Yes or no? All right, not quite as strong on the predestined one. Right? Say, say it with conviction this morning. All right, what's the next step? Did God call you? Yes or no? All right. Did God justify you? Have you noticed that they're all in the past tense? In the Greek, well, Joe knows Greek better than I do. So if you have any Greek questions, go to Joe. Don't go to me. But in the Greek, the aorist tense, all written in a certain tense called the aorist tense, a completed act by God in each of these steps. For new, predestined, what was the next one? No. Called, justified. Do you all feel comfortable? That's a completed act of God. Something he did. Right? Now what about the next one? Now if, if, if you're an Adventist preacher and you're preaching on glorification, that's something that's going to come in the future. Why would Paul put it in the past tense? Yes, exactly. And why does he not mention sanctification as one of these steps? These are the steps that God does for those that are saved. For new or for loved, predestined, called, justified, glorified, past tense. This is one of the most daring statements in the whole of Scripture. It's an amazing statement. That if you wrap your mind around it, and that's not going to happen just this morning because we're discussing it. You have to go home. You have to meditate on these things. In the mind of God... It's all one act. It's a done deal in the mind of God. That's the way to look at this. So yes, glorification, a lot of scripture, including in Paul's writings, will be future when Christ comes. And this body, which we talked talk briefly about the body, in, in a sense, let's put it this way, your spirit, or what some would call your soul, I know that's a bit tricky. Your spirit has been redeemed, but your body hasn't. When is that going to happen? When Christ comes back and transforms our body into his glorious body. So, these are five steps that you need to memorize. And when I preached a few sermons on this in my church, some of them actually did memorize those steps. And I was kind of encouraged encouraged by that because by understanding these steps that he god and that's strongly emphasized in each of these steps in the in the verses here that he god is doing um it hel it helps us to be a little bit more objective a lot more objective actually as far as our salvation is concerned <clears throat> all right we have a few minutes i think all right any questions on that so it's probably a totally different thought that you've had before, but it is very, very biblical, very important to understand 
this section of Romans 8. Yes. Okay, there you go. That's good. good connection right there. That's very helpful. So, so that's the way to look at this. So it should really make you ecstatic. I mean, everyone should be beaming from ear to ear if you're really understanding what's going on here. This is all part of the good news. This, this idea of good news is, is the power of God unto salvation is, is, is very broad, very big, very profound. It has many, many dimensions. It's like the gospel is like, like a diamond that you would hold up to the light. And as you turn it, you just see many different facets. There's not one way of explaining this. Uh, if we use the word justification, for example, we're immediately in, a, in, in a, a courtroom. Now, I used the banker's illustration with you for justification. But another, another illustration, maybe a better one, is the law court. And so you're, you're in the court there, and you've been accused of a crime. So you and I are in that court and we've been accused of a crime. And we know we're guilty. And if we're not sure, hey, it's all on video. Right? You know, some criminals, even when they see it on video, they say, no, that's not me. Well, it's all recorded, right? Isn't that a biblical truth? Everything is recorded. All right. So we hang our heads. We know we're guilty. And we know that we should uh, deserve the penalty for that crime. What is the penalty, by the way? Eternal death. Eternal separation, what the Bible calls hell. That's what it is. It's not pretty. It's the, the main thing to be avoided. Alright? So that, that's, that's it. But somebody, like we use the banking illustration of the million dollars, put into your account, somebody comes and pays the price for you. The price has always got to be paid. That's very important to understand. God is not winking at sin. God is pouring out His wrath upon whom? The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He took the wrath of God and took the sins of mankind upon Himself. So it doesn't have to come upon you and, and I. So God did all of that. So, because somebody has paid the price, the judge, and this is very just, and very righteous, the judge can say, not guilty, free to leave the court, or something like that. Now you may leave that court, and you may feel terrible for the things that you have inflicted on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what the judge says is what counts. Right? Not how you feel. Feelings are very fickle. So, if you don't remember, and if you don't keep at the forefront of your mind what the judge has said, innocent, not guilty, free to leave the court, or whatever, the devil has found a weak spot in your armory. And he will exploit that. It doesn't mean to say he's going to take your salvation away. He can't do that. That's for sure. But he can make you what kind of adventist? Sadventus instead of glad Ventus. Which one does God want? 
Okay. So that's why he gives us this information here the way he does. Um, so then verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? Paul wants a response. I want a response. I'm not getting up at 5.30 in the morning without getting a response from you guys. So how should we respond? Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. There you go. Praise the Lord. Yes? Now, that brings up an interesting point. How long have we got? Five minutes. Will you give me five minutes? I don't like that translation. Now, it may be an okay translation, but you know that language changes pretty much like every 10 years, every five years maybe. Language is constantly changing. If, the, if there's an if word, the way that we use language, it's maybe a little bit hesitant, not quite so strong, not quite so sure. So I want you to write in your Bibles, if you're into that, the word since. Since. So let's read that verse, and that's verse 31, right? Since God is for us, now that's the whole eight chapters right there that have been establishing that very point. Since God is for us, who or what can be against us? And you know where he's, he's going with all of this? He's building this argument, this impregnable argument that nothing, nothing can really be against us. Oh, Paul forgot that? Paul is, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to say he's a genius, because then you're going to put the emphasis on the hum, human side of him. But I tell you, not one word is wasted in Paul's writings. Never do what we're doing this morning by racing through these, these passages. Go through them really slowly. Ask God in prayer, why does Paul use that phrase? And what does, that, what does adoption mean? We went over adoption and, and I hardly skipped a beat. I, I really didn't even slow down because I knew that there was other material that I had to cover. But the whole idea of adoption is so glorious. I sometimes make up an illustration um, of this little girl that's outside of Buckingham Palace. Here's, here's the Englishman coming through in me now. And, uh, and the little girl, this little orphan girl, she's been kicked out, she's grimy, she's dirty, no one really cares about her, and she's on, on the big streets of London. So this is my adoption illustration. And um, she's, like all the tourists, she's looking through the bars there, and looking at Buckingham Palace and just thinking, oh, how wonderful it would be to live in such a place as, as Buckingham Palace. And then the crowd gasps, because the queen comes out, of the, the doors there towards the crowd. And she makes a beeline for that little, grimy, dirty, orphan girl. And she says, hello, little girl. What's your name? And you can think of some name that will tug at the heartstrings for this illustration. And, and she tells her her name. And she says, little girl, would you like to come and live in my home? What's that girl going to say? No, I like the streets of London. They're so filthy and dirty and grimy and people are always kicking me to the curb. This is just a neat place to live. The, the life of London is the life of sin. 
And, and those of us that belong to God don't belong there anymore. Didn't we read in Romans 6? Yes, very quickly. But if any of you have any questions on sanctification and, and how all of these fit in with holiness, read Romans 6. We are dead to sin. Dead to the law, dead to sin, dead to death, dead to the devil. All that negative stuff of the old life has gone. So she said, well, you like to live in my home? Yes, I'd like to live in your home. So she takes her by the hand, which God literally does with us, and takes her into her home. Now, that's a cute little illustration, don't you think? And that's Terry Mason's imagination uh, running, running wild. Now, when that little girl is in the house, which you and I are, if we believe in Christ, right? We're in, in Christ Jesus, we're in, we're not out, we're in. Don't you think that little girl is going to find it unusual to be so clean? They're going to scrub that little girl up so she is spotless. She's going to be sparkling, ding, everywhere she goes. She's also got to learn how royalty lives the same with us spiritually none of us in this room knows how to live a spiritual life we can't just have great brains and figure that out god has to teach us those lessons through scripture through experience through the holy spirit and so on and so forth but and another thing we can think of when we think of adoption is when the little girl messes up does the queen give her the royal boot No, that's kind of undignified for the queen to do that, isn't it? Queens don't belong that, don't don't behave that way. Well, now we're talking about God. So God will do everything he can to clean us up, to scrub us up, to, to educate us, so that we can realize first who we are in Christ. We're royalty. Okay, understand that no matter if it takes 10 years. Understand that and then behave accordingly if we mess up then that text in first john if we sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so i think i'll stop on that point yes question no now, I'm afraid the sufferings and the discipline is right there to the end. And, and I'll tell you something else. We haven't, we haven't spent any time about how to deal with temptation, and the attacks of the devil and stuff like that, which is happening constantly to us. But you have to build almost like an impregnable armor around yourself to really stand strong. Because that is God's goal for us. Everything we need... To live a godly life has been given to us. So for us to be praying, uh, Lord, uh, give me more faith. Well, I guess in one sense I can understand that. But in another sense, God has given you faith. Uh, God, give me more strength. Well, in a sense, God has given you strength already. What God wants us to do is exercise what we already have. So even our prayer life should change as we understand these concepts. So so the idea that I will summarize it with, Lord, help me to be all that you have called me to be. A passage that's really helpful on this is Philippians 2. Let's use that as our closing statement.
Philippians 2. I think it's 12 and 13, but I have to look at that. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Oh, this is the Shining Stars one. I like, I like this one. All right. Verse 12 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So if you just stop there, the onus is solely upon us, right? But you have to complete the, the concept, the phrase here. Uh, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So you could literally be on your deathbed. And I can give you examples of this from church history. And the devil will be still attacking you. So, no, we have to... <laughs> Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. But don't be over-preoccupied um, on, on your progress in this sense. Thank God for where you are spiritually. Most of us don't do that. So, you're climbing a mountain. And in a sense, as far as your holiness is concerned, as far as your salvation is concerned, in a sense, you're already on the top of the mountain. But as far as your growth in Christ is concerned, maybe you're halfway. Right? So you can fret a whole lot about whether you're going to make it to the top of the mountain, or you can thank God first that you're halfway. If you really thank God and praise God for being halfway, don't you think there's a tremendous, uh, not incentive, that's not what I'm trying to say, but, but there's, there's a good chance, because you're halfway, because He has got you halfway, you're not taking glory to yourself that he's going to get you on the mountaintop. So it's, it's, it's the whole question, is the glass half full or half empty? And the New Testament way of looking at your Christian life is it is much more than half full. So that's Romans 5 when he talks about the gospel there. Much more. So thank God for the much more and be, be energized by that. That whatever there is in your character that needs to be perfected, God's going to take care of that. With, as this text says, you work out what He's already worked in. Alright, let's close with prayer. Gracious God, we thank You and praise You for Your goodness, for these uh, incredible passages here in Romans 8. And Lord, it's even going to get more glorious than this. So we thank You and we praise You. And open our minds, open our hearts. May this not just be an intellectual exercise that we go through, but may, we, may it lead to praise, to praising you, to glorifying you in every aspect of our lives. We thank you and we praise you that Jesus died for us on the cross. Now help us to understand the significance of that so that we can truly be conformed into his image is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.